This is Andrew Sill, Associate Music Director of New York City Ballet, and I'm your guest host today for another episode of See the Music. Today, we're talking about Igor Stravinsky's Orpheus, which premiered in 1948. It was commissioned by the Ballet Society, the immediate precursor to our New York City Ballet. And as a matter of fact, Orpheus had something to do with the Ballet Society of George Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein becoming New York City Ballet, but let's leave that story for another time. And speaking of stories, the story of Orpheus is obviously a classical Greek legend, and Stravinsky had a very particular take on how he wanted to tell that story in his music. We're fortunate that we can hear him explain his approach in his own words in this excerpt from a 1949 interview at WQXR. Of particular interest, are his thoughts on whether to use or to imitate ancient music. I visualize the character of this music as a long, sustained, slow chant, composed independently of any folkloristic element, concerning which we know almost nothing. But even if I knew ancient Greek music, it would be of no use to me. The sophisticated painters of the Renaissance painted the stories of ancient Greece or the Bible and the European landscape and costumes of their own time without attempting to reconstruct the scene of Greece or Palestine with historical accuracy. I have also avoided all unessential ethnographic details for the sake of a higher symphonic reality. Stravinsky was true to his word in that he never actually imitated ancient music in Orpheus. However, as usual with this great master, the truth is more complicated. This ballet is full of deliberate references to ancient music that nevertheless stop short of ever trying to imitate it. In the very opening of the ballet, for instance, Stravinsky uses an ancient mode called the Phrygian mode. I'll play the Phrygian scale on the piano first, and then I'll play it again the way Stravinsky introduces it to us at the beginning of Orpheus. Now, in that descending scale that Stravinsky wrote, you may have noticed one note in the middle that leapt upward before the scale continued down. The simple way that one scale, which is played by the harp, tells the whole story of Orpheus's descent into the underworld, his attempt to bring his wife back up to the surface, and his ultimate failure as she's pulled back down is pure genius. And it's no accident that Stravinsky gives this scale to the harp. It's the instrument in our modern orchestra that's closest to the lyre, the instrument that, along with his voice, Orpheus used to charm gods and mortals and nature alike. Here it is again in its orchestral form with the sustained chant-like accompaniment that Stravinsky described to us a moment ago.
Stravinsky liked to indulge freely in what he called a rare form of kleptomania. By way of explanation, he said that lesser artists borrow, great artists steal. Now, clearly Stravinsky did not suffer from false modesty, but he was trying to explain that he took freely from whatever musical sources suited his needs at a given moment, and that he then transformed them into something new. That was the distinction between his humorous borrowing and stealing. If you stole a musical idea in Stravinsky's parlance, you made it truly yours. And these conjured elements form important layers of meaning in Stravinsky's music. Here is a short section in which Stravinsky pays subtle homage to two of his own earlier ballets with classical Greek themes, Apollo and Persephone. The music is quite transformed, but it functions here as a wisp of a memory, a distraction from Orpheus's grief. In this next passage, you can hear two interesting examples of Stravinsky's power to borrow and transform musical effects that in other composers' hands might be downright cliches. First, we have high fluttering string tremolos to accompany the eerie moment in the ballet when the angel of death leads Orpheus into Hades. It's a musical effect that every Hollywood movie composer uses for eerie moments. And then the trumpet melody that follows is undeniably Stravinsky's reworking of taps. Stravinsky overlays and transforms these two dangerously overused ideas into something altogether novel and strange in this passage. In a very tangible way, the musical score to Orpheus is all about time, mythical time in the sense that Stravinsky's music refers to the past but sounds modern. And the music resists our attempts to categorize it as belonging to any particular date or school of composition. But time is also an element that Stravinsky plays with inside his score as well. Here's a passage in The Dance of the Furies where Stravinsky plays with those different layers of time. His accompaniment is inspired by those that Rossini might have written, albeit with a more menacing accent in the bass. His pulse is highly agitated. His melodic fragments enter in unexpected bursts. And yet his harmonic rhythm, that is when he decides to change chords, 
is almost totally static. So Stravinsky manages to create a lot of motion while keeping the music churning in place. In the next excerpt, Stravinsky writes a beautiful duet for oboes, accompanied by the harp. The music is clearly meant to refer to a Baroque or Rococo style, but it is colored enough by Stravinsky's individual sense of melody and harmony that it sounds both old and fresh at the same time. Like reading the Greek myths themselves, this is music that Stravinsky wants us to understand we could have heard in the ancient past, that it's music we are hearing now, and that it's music that will retain its expressive power indefinitely into the future. Stravinsky's very personal and very powerful sense of rhythm comes to the forefront in the next passage we're going to hear. Syncopation, or putting accents where we don't expect them to be, is the hallmark of this music which accompanies the attack of Orpheus by the Bacchants. An important feature of Stravinsky's style of syncopating that's perhaps not talked about often enough is his use of silences. After all, a well-placed silence can punctuate music just as impressively as a well-placed chord. Here's an example of the way Stravinsky uses chords and silences to syncopate his music. The energy of this music never seems to lose its ability to surprise me. Orpheus ends with a transformation of the music with which it began. We hear the descending harp scale again, this time accompanying a plaintive counterpoint among horns, violin, and trumpet. 
In the score, Stravinsky tells us that during this music, Apollo appears, he takes the lyre from Orpheus and raises his song upwards. As this music moves inexorably toward its conclusion, Stravinsky gives us a final drawn-out phrase in which the trumpet melody climbs slowly toward its last note. Notice that the last chord, which Stravinsky repeats four times, never resolves. It's meant to point beyond itself, to remind us of the timelessness of the Orpheus story. Thank you for joining us on City Ballet, the podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to stay up to date on episode releases. All of us at New York City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater. Head over to nycballet.com to see what's on our stage. <laughs>